Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. Thanks for being with us this week. And on the program this time, a bit of a focus on logistics. Later on in the hour, we'll talk with Al Thompson, the CEO of HomeSafe Alliance. That's the company that's now been cleared to get to work on the Defense Department's gargantuan contract to reform and manage the military's household goods moving system. Now that the Government Accountability Office has denied each of the bid protests that challenged the up to $18 billion award. First, though, I want to talk about the Defense Department's decision to completely defuel and decommission its massive fuel storage bunker in Oahu. From the perspective of Hawaii health officials and environmental activists, it's a big win. The Red Hill facility has leaked fuel into groundwater supplies several times before, but the incident that spurred the decision to finally shut down the World War II-era facility contaminated the water in the Navy's own Pearl Harbor housing. It made 6,000 people sick, 4,000 families were forced to move to nearby hotels. But the decision also has major strategic and logistics implications across the Indo-Pacific region. Red Hill stores 250 million gallons of fuel, and the military is going to need to replace that capacity one way or another. To talk more about those challenges, we're joined by Tim Walton, a military logistics expert at the Hudson Institute. Tim, thanks for being with us. And and I guess right, right off the top, scale of 1 to 10, how surprising was this decision to you yesterday, both in terms of the substance of the decision and the rapidity with which DOD made it, because they'd really only been seriously analyzing this for five, six weeks, I think. I, I was very surprised. I'd say in, in terms of the speed of the decision, I, I'd put that at, at seven, if, if you want. In terms of DOD, it tends to move at a pretty glacial pace sometimes, but uh, but I think Deputy Secretary of Defense Hicks uh, took this upon herself to uh, then go through the analysis and quickly reach a decision. In terms of the, the conclusion, I, I'd say maybe five or less, uh, just because it was going to be a major effort to, I think, remediate the situation and uh, either recapitalize Red Hill itself or propose an alternative there on Oahu that would have met the same requirements. And that would have probably been a very expensive process. And so I think DOD was looking for alternatives that might accelerate a shift to a more resilient architecture, but ideally would be lower cost as well. Um, One year is the objective here. I don't think that's a hard deadline, but you know, I, I would like to think DOD wouldn't have made this decision if the initial analysis hadn't shown that that timeline was likely at least feasible. But it, it seems pretty aggressive. I mean, what are what are some of the things that are going to make that challenging? I think the first step will be making sure that there are no more operator errors in terms of the operation of the, the facility. Um, this latest spill seemed to have been caused by an operator error as opposed to, let's say, some deficiency in the fuel tanks themselves. So I think they'll want to triple check their procedures to make sure nothing like that is going to happen again. Moving beyond that, though, um, they're going to need to have, I think, some other alternatives to transfer those fuels to uh, and make sure that those fit into different operational plans. So I think DOD's likely been trying to set up what are the the types of alternatives or um, substitute options, both afloat and ashore, that can meet some of these fuel store requirements. But at the same time, I, w- I would assume they're still going to need some large storage capacity on Oahu itself, since it's such a large fleet concentration center. I mean, just s- scattering the existing stores across Indo-PACOM probably is not going to meet all their strategic objectives, I would guess. You're absolutely right, Jared. And so I think there are stores at uh, Pearl Harbor and at Hickam itself 
Um, but I still think there's likely going to be a need for some additional um, stores there on Oahu. Uh, I think that the DOD's press release talking about commercial infrastructure and how they will want to leverage that likely hints at the fact that their DOD's um, probably going to examine the use of the above ground stores that are operated by Park Pacific um, in the west part of the, the island. So these are commercially owned fuel stores that DOD could perhaps contract to store anywhere from 300,000 uh, barrels to 3 million barrels. Um, that larger number would be using an unused refinery that's there on the island. But uh, DOD now has, I think, an ability to move some of its about 5 million barrels of fuel that it had at Red Hill and move maybe at a million barrels to 3 million barrels to some of these above ground commercial storage tanks on Oahu. And then the other initiative would be having some of those fuel tanks be afloat in pre-position tankers, some of which could be near uh, the Hawaiian islands, and then others uh, could operate in other parts of the Indo-Pacific. One of the advantages, I think, of Red Hill, besides its sheer size, was that since it was underground and reinforced, it was pretty difficult for an enemy to attack successfully. Um, talk about some of the advantages of, of that sort of bunkered approach versus the above ground uh, approach that you were just talking about and what sort of vulnerabilities DOD might create in the short term by moving a lot of this into above ground tanks and tankers afloat? Mm -hmm. So That's a great question. So um, hardened underground fuel stores really were necessary in 1943 when construction at Red Hill started. And, and I would argue that given the even more potent precision strike capabilities that China and Russia have today, some hardened underground fuel stores continue to be required. Uh, the benefits of hardened underground stores like at Red Hill, but at some other bases that we have around the world are that no single location is invulnerable to attack, but it does make it more difficult for an adversary to mount an attack that can precisely attack um, the ex you know, surface expressions of, of those fuel stores or depending on the facility could penetrate deep enough to get at the fuel tanks themselves. So uh, moving forward, DOD, I think is going to continue to have a need for hardened underground fuel stores in Hawaii and in other places throughout the Indo-Pacific. And, and I'd argue DOD likely needs to, as part of this in it, this change, start to invest more in some hardened underground fuel stores in other places like Alaska, the Marianas, Compact Free Association States and Australia. Um, Hardened underground fuel storage, though, won't be the, the only solution. And so I think DOD is also looking at complementary uh, above ground stores. Uh, above ground stores are cheaper to build. They're also easier to maintain and operate. Uh, most commercial stores are above ground nowadays. Um, and uh, they have those advantages. Um, we see DOD building some above ground stores, for instance, on uh, in Darwin right now uh, and another project in Tinian. And so I think uh, above ground stores have their place. Um, and another option could be these complementary contractor owned contractor operated stores on Oahu, but they're obviously a lot more vulnerable uh, to attack. So moving forward, I think there's going to have to be a mix of some new hardened underground fuel stores, uh, ideally ones that could be double hold and facilitate interstitial monitoring and maintenance so that we can make, do this in an environmentally conscious and responsible manner, but some also some complementary. Uh, stores uh, in, in terms of above ground storage tanks. The, the final category that you mentioned are stores afloat in terms of maritime tankers. And so maritime tankers, you can move them around 
uh, and that makes targeting at long ranges a lot more challenging because it's difficult to plan exactly where that tanker could be at any single moment when you fire a long-range missile or when a bomber takes off to, to go attack it. But um, as you point out, uh, tankers afloat on the surface do have some vulnerabilities. So I think the Navy will need to think about how they want to best protect those uh, floating fuel tanks. And they don't have unlimited endurance, right? Because you, you've got to keep those ships crewed. They've got to operate. They've got to pull into port at certain intervals. So it's any sense for how, how large a piece of the pie that could make up? That's a good question. Um, I think they do have some degree of endurance in the sense that you can rotate crews onto those tankers. Um, and so you can have crews swap back and forth. The tankers themselves also tend to have pumps that uh, circulate the fuel so that the fuel can stay fresh, quote unquote. And, and I'm sure that part of what DOD would do is Every now and then, they would offload the fuel from some of those tankers at, onto bases and have that fuel be used and then have those same tankers load um, more fuel. On the question, though, of how many tankers that could make up, I, I think DOD is going to have to figure out what types of tankers it wants first. Um, just like fuel stores are short, you could either concentrate those stores at a smaller number of very large big tankers, like very large crew carriers that are a million barrels or so. So you could have two to five of these really big tankers, or you could have it at more numerous, smaller tankers that might be around 300,000 barrels that could pull into a larger number of ports, uh, are also more useful in terms of refueling Navy ships at sea. And so I think DOD is probably going to want to look at a mix of larger and smaller tankers. Talking with Tim Walton, a fellow and logistics expert at the Hudson Institute, about the Defense Department's somewhat surprising decision to shut down its massive Red Hill fuel storage facility in Hawaii and redistribute its fuel reserves across the Pacific region. He's back to talk more with us about the implications and challenges after a quick break. This is On DoD, on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbin. on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. We're talking with Tim Walton, a fellow at the Hudson Institute, about DOD's decision to completely defuel its 250 million gallon fuel storage facility called Red Hill near Honolulu. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says the department will replace that capacity with new facilities that are more distributed across the Pacific region based on a plan the Navy's been tasked to deliver in the coming months. And Tim, one of the questions there is if DOD doesn't completely replace all of the capacity it's losing from Red Hill by the time Red Hill is fully decommissioned, is that the sort of thing where we would expect to see operational impacts in peacetime? Or is it more right to think of this as something akin to a strategic reserve where you break glass during wartime? To date, Red Hill has supported uh, some peacetime activities, such as there's an our biennial exercise called the Rim of the Pacific exercise, in which lots of allies come to the Hawaiian Islands and, and train, um, and that requires uh, additional fuel to be drawn from Red Hill to support those activities. So I think uh, there will be a need for some of this Red Hill equivalent capacity to support those peacetime activities. But in reality, Red Hill is that wartime reserve where if things go bad and there is a major crisis either caused by a war or a natural disaster, frankly, um, you would want to draw from those stocks. The secretary's statement at least hints at the idea that there are 
good strategic reasons to have your fuel reserves dispersed across the AOR instead of in one place. But but I think it's also fair to say that they didn't do this primarily for that reason. They they probably would not be walking away from Red Hill if it was still politically and environmentally tenable. So I, I guess the question there is, what are the lessons from this episode of making sure that you take care of your existing stuff? Do you have a good sense for how much else is at risk due to... Uh, you know, a lack of maintenance, given the degree to which DOD has knowingly taken risks in the facility sustainment and modernization accounts for the past decade, probably more. Uh, that, that's a great question. And I completely agree with you that, that moving forward, uh, DOD is going to have to focus on this a bit, a lot more. Um, DOD has, uh, I think, in general, tried to avoid recapitalizing some of these major projects that were built during World War II or during the Cold War. And that it's continued to use just because they're major expenses um, and they usually don't have any strong constituencies. Um, it's easier for, I think, members of Congress and, and um, their constituents to point to the ship that's built in their district or the aircraft or some other asset. Few people get fired up about fuel tanks. Um, so I, I think uh, there, there is growing interest in making the, the types of investments in these readiness or integration activities that are needed. Uh, House Armed Services Committee, Subcommittee on Readiness Chairman John Garamendi of, of California has, I think, expressed interest in trying to apply a critical lens towards what are the types of investments that DOD has been foregoing for a long time and get at those in this legislative cycle. So I think we should be seeing a growing number of hearings um, and legislative activities uh, on that subject. Yeah, and I think a related point, not only are there not as strong contingencies for these specific types of projects, but just as a matter of how the law works, OCONUS versus here, my recollection is that the secretary has a lot more freedom to do infrastructure projects and move things from place to place outside the continental United States to do things that would require a BRAC process, basically. To, to make comparable changes here. Does that give them a little bit more freedom to maneuver on a, a big project like this? Um, I, I think it could. And uh, I would argue that on, on, the, on activities like using maritime tankers um, or changing the sourcing of DLA energy contracts so that they rely more on U.S. refineries and in turn that fuel needs to be transported on U.S. flag tankers, all of that could be done without any legislative changes and could be done really quickly. Um, larger construction projects that, that take place inside the U.S. do tend to require yep, a, a more onerous environmental impact statement process and, and uh, military construction authorities. I would argue, though, that, that there are new opportunities for, for the Secretary of Defense to leverage some other authorities to accelerate some of these shifts in, I, I'd argue, like a more resilient Indo-Pacific uh, infrastructure or global infrastructure and posture. Um, the, the global posture review was released last uh, month and a few details were released, uh, but, but in general, uh, I think the consensus from DOD was that our global posture is more or less okay, but we're going to start to make some improvements to our installations. So do I think accelerate some of the those uh, efforts, uh, I'd argue we need to probably just talk less about some of our posture moves and do more, build more. Um, and, and there are ways to do that using leveraging uh, unspecified minor construction authorities. So DOD can sometimes spend money without specifically identifying what they're going to spend it on as long as it's less than $7 million, which isn't all that much in the grand scheme of things. 
There's also opportunities for contingency construction projects. So when the, for instance, uh, the North Koreans were threatening to attack Guam in 2013, the Secretary of Defense simply ordered a THAAD battery to be deployed to Guam and build all the necessary support infrastructure they needed. And they essentially did the environmental impact statement process after the fact. So that could be done. That's a relatively aggressive action. And then the, the third authority that probably could be leveraged a bit more is repair facilities authorities, where uh, there's a set of uh, authorities that allow DOD to construct projects that are up to 75% of uh, the value of an originally constructed project if you're repairing an existing DOD or federal facility. So there are many uh, abandoned or unused airfields throughout the, uh, the Indo-Pacific that U.S. forces built during World War II, for instance, or harbors that we could go back to and use Navy CVs, Air Force Red Horse, and other units to repair many of those places. And I think it would have a, a great impact in terms of changing our, our posture in the Indo-Pacific and also would have a deterrent effect because it would demonstrate that we can actually make some of these changes quickly. Yeah, it sounds like some of those authorities would require you to do things in pretty small chunks. But sooner or later, if you keep doing those things year after year after year, you've made a lot more progress than doing nothing. That, that's right. And, and DOD today, for instance, goes to places like Tinian and, and conducts Operation Forager Fury, which is an exercise in which uh, DOD more or less practices how it would conduct agile combat employment or expeditionary advance bases. These new concepts that the Air Force and Marine Corps are, are embracing to have that envision uh, operating for more austere airfields. So we, instead of just practicing, for instance, that we would repair uh, an airfield that's been damaged, let's actually repair the airfields that we have on Timin uh, from World War II. And, and as you point out, this could be gradual, but if every year we're repairing one of the four 8,000 foot runways, in four years, we could have a lot more ramp space there. And Tim, before we let you go, I mean, we, we've talked a lot mostly during our conversation so far about sort of the supply and storage side of the fuel e equation. Let's talk a little, at least, about the, the demand side, just because, in part, oil prices are going up right now. My sort of subjective sense is when this happens, DOD and, and leaders on the Hill, especially in the readiness committees, at least talk a lot more about problems of energy resiliency and efficiency. Um, is it your sense that the and these really do cause big budget impacts to, to the O&M accounts when fuel prices spike like this. Is it your sense that the sort of global economic situation that we're in right now with fuel prices is going to provide some significant or noticeable incentive for the department and for congressional leaders in the NDAA to make a big push toward fuel efficiency? I think it, it can certainly accelerate interest in this area. Um, since around the early 2000s, DOD has established different offices for maximizing uh, the resilience of its forces or um, increasing the, the efficiency of its uh, military assets. The level of interest in this area, I, I think, has gone up and down, perhaps in tied, tied to price of oil prices, as, as, as you were pointing out. Now that they're high, I think it's going to increasing interest in this topic. It's coupled, though, I think, with the recognition of the, the operational factors. Um, during, for instance, the earlier Obama administration, then Secretary of the Navy Ray Mavis had expressed interest in his Great Green Fleet, which was an initiative to try to use biofuels on, on Navy combatants and the like, and to spur the growth of a, of a commercial uh, biofuel market where DOD could be a, a leader and then the rest of the commercial sector could follow. 
to some degree that didn't really pan out uh, very much. It just doesn't scale very well. But the, the seeds that were planted in terms of critically uh, evaluating what are the, re the energy requirements of different assets, I think are now starting to bear fruit. Where when we look at new ship classes like the, the proposed DDGX, greater endurance, so more fuel capacity so you can go a longer distance and don't require as much logistical support is important. Another requirement though that's baked into that is greater fuel efficiency so that you burn less fuel uh, and I think it's a good way of maximizing your tactical or operational effectiveness because you don't need to refuel as often, but it also makes DOD a better steward of, of the taxpayer dollar and, and of the environment. All of these changes tend to take time though to, to be manifest throughout the force because you need to buy whatever new asset it is at scale. And so um, it's a 10, 20 plus year evolution of the force, um, but new, new efforts starting now, I think are going to be helpful. Tim Walton is a fellow at the Hudson Institute, where he specializes in defense logistics, among other topics. Another quick break here, and we'll talk about the logistics of implementing the military's new household goods moving contract, now that it's cleared a major bid protest hurdle. This is on DOD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Servan. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, I'm Jared Serbu. This is on DOD. There is still a chance the Defense Department's multi-billion dollar household goods moving contract could get derailed by another round of bid protests at the Court of Federal Claims. But for now, it's full steam ahead. After the Government Accountability Office denied five separate bid protests, U.S. Transportation Command lifted a stop work order. That lets winning vendor HomeSafe Alliance start the implementation process for the massive transformation of the military's moving system. Al Thompson is HomeSafe's CEO. He talked with me about some of the next steps. We're thrilled with the outcome. We think that U.S. Transcom has done a very thorough and professional job in considering all of the proposals. Uh, we're very pleased to be the awardee, and uh, we've been operating under a stop work uh, order since November, and they, they uh, canceled that. So we are moving forward quickly on activating and transitioning into the program. And before the protests were actually filed, I think the expectation was the contract would be fully implemented and moves would actually start happening under the new contract by late calendar year 2022. Protest, I'm sure, set that back a bit. Do we know how much? Uh, correct. The, uh, the schedule right now calls to begin performing domestic moves in the United States in December of 2022, uh, starting with 25% of the moves in December, uh, moving to 50% of the moves in January, 75% in February, and 100% in March. And uh, the current schedule then has a pause as we go into peak season uh, 2023 with the international moves then coming online under the global household goods contract uh, after the peak season ends, uh, so beginning in September, and the same 25% uh, to 50% to 75 to 100% over a four-month period of time. Interesting. Just out of curiosity, and I'm sure this is a transcom decision, is there a, a rationale for putting those international moves, those OCONUS moves at the back of the line? Well, I think, uh, you know, the, the volume, the highest volume, of course, is domestic in the United States. So they want to 
address that as quickly as possible. Uh, I, I believe they've uh, determined that it would be wise to not have a transition from one way of support to a new way during the peak season. So I think that explains the desire for the pause. Got it. So as a practical matter, between now and December, what, what does HomeSafe actually need to do to get up and running? Well, um, many things. We have to uh, bring HomeSafe Connect to life, which is our end-to-end information technology solution, which is uh, the great enabler for performing on the global household goods contract. Uh, so we have teams working very hard on that right now to finish the development and then quickly move into testing, uh, which U.S. Transcom will then engage and do their own independent testing. Uh, We also have an outside firm that will do penetration testing to meet uh, the operational requirements of the program, but also uh, to meet some very stringent cybersecurity requirements so that uh, we're absolutely certain that we're protecting uh, data for our military service members and their families. And what about getting contractual arrangements in place with individual moving companies and van lines? Does that still need to happen, or was that all done kind of pre-award as part of your bid package? Well, we have done uh, a substantial amount of work, but that also has to be completed during the uh, activation transition-in period. And as you recall from the last time we spoke, it's, uh, it's a vast network of many local uh, small business movers and, and larger uh, companies that, uh, that we need to bring together. So uh, we are already planning an outreach strategy where we'll be visiting a number of cities across the United States to meet with representatives of uh, industry and uh, assist them with becoming uh, members of the larger Home Safe Alliance team. And as I understand the way that you've previously described the technology to us, they will all need to adopt this IT platform that you're developing. Is that right? Yeah, that's the intent. And it's it's needed for several reasons. One, we want to make sure that, that we have a, a common user experience. Uh, we also have to meet these very stringent cybersecurity requirements, which are kind of new to the moving industry. Uh, and And so we determined early on that trying to uh, interface a large number of uh, different systems would not allow us to meet the cybersecurity requirements. It's going to be a pretty big enterprise managing the entire military moving system worldwide. Do you have a good sense yet for how large a workforce you're going to need and what that staffing plan kind of looks like? Well, you're right. It is um, it is a huge undertaking. Potentially 320,000 moves a year. Um, you know, more than 2,500 uh, members of the team, subcontractors to HomeSafe. Uh, HomeSafe Alliance itself will be smaller. Uh, peak about 750 uh, members of the team at several locations across the United States. Uh, and, you know, we will expand the team for the peak summer move season. But, of course, thousands of movers below uh, home safe in the structure that will be uh, performing the mission. And what sorts of staffing needs are you going to have on the home safe team itself? Is it largely customer service? Is it largely technology? Some of both, I assume. 
Well, it is. It's a mixture of all. Uh, I mean, it is a standalone company, so uh, you'll have all of the supporting functions that would be required, uh, whether it be finance or human resources, procurement, uh, contract support, legal, uh, and so forth, information technology. Uh, But also, as you pointed out, uh, a significant customer uh, care capability because one of the things that uh, we're very focused on is providing the very best possible experience for our military service members, their families, and uh, Department of Defense civilians. So a very robust call center enabled by cutting-edge technology. Uh, And, of course, as we talked before, interaction can also be through uh, mobile apps uh, on smartphones and other devices uh, that that will also ensure that uh, the the customer is uh, always in touch with HomeSafe, knows what's happening when, and uh, if there are any concerns or questions or needs to adjust the schedule, we can do that immediately for our customers. And as you start to phase in and, and take on more of this workload, starting, as you said, with that 25% in December, what sort of quality control measures, measurements are you going to have in place to make sure that the moving experience actually is getting better? Yeah, and and that's very, very important because uh, two things from a customer standpoint that uh, will be apparent immediately is a a greatly enhanced uh, customer experience from the standpoint of interacting with HomeSafe uh, and uh, being constantly updated on information that's useful to them related to their move. But also, uh, we want to incentivize the moving industry to meet our very high standards for quality. So we've developed a carrier quality index, uh, essentially a scorecard for each of our movers. We have a, a way of setting those at the beginning and then adjusting as we have uh, experience with the mover, there's a number of factors in there related to timeliness, um, uh, satisfaction, that sort of thing. And we'll adjust those as we go. And those with the highest uh, quality index scores will get more workload. And those that don't meet our standards, we have plans for a very robust outreach and uh, supplemental training so that we can get them to our standard. And we're convinced that the overall experience for our customers, the military uh, service member and their family should be greatly enhanced. This is a, I mean, certainly that the, the companies involved in develop in, in coming together to create HomeSafe have a good deal of logistics experience, but nobody's executed a contract exactly like this. It's a new thing. What, what do you expect as a company that you'll learn as you start to take on this workload, or are there unanswered questions that you know right now that you're going to have to figure out as soon as um, implementation starts? I think we've thought through most of uh, the challenges, and it's not to say that there won't be many, uh, but we have a very um, capable uh, team of other uh, companies that are working with us that are experts in the moving industry, that are experts in the management of moves uh, in logistics, in transportation. Uh, And so I think we have a very uh, comprehensive team with considerable experience uh, in 
all the key elements of success and in the moving industry and with the members of the armed forces, their families and DOD civilians. So, uh, so I think we have all the ingredients of uh, a much improved experience for uh, DOD moves. And, uh, and I'm sure there will be uh, some issues that arise that we'll have to take on as they arise, but we've worked very hard to try to identify uh, all of the challenges that will emerge, and, and we have pre-planned responses to address them. The, the uh, military service member family experience should be dramatically improved. The quality of moves should be much better. The timeliness and predictability of uh, when the move is going to start and when it is going to finish uh, should be much better. So we're very optimistic. We uh, are total believers in the global household goods concept. We think this is very innovative and forward-leaning on the part of U.S. Transportation Command. Uh, we're thrilled to take on the challenge and uh, delight military customer. That's Al Thompson, the CEO of HomeSafe Alliance, the company that won the Defense Department's multi-billion dollar contract to restructure and centrally manage the military's household goods moving system. Still to come on Federal News Radio, U.S. troops and diplomats are out of Afghanistan, but the special IG for Afghanistan Reconstruction still has work to do. We'll hear about what's actually involved in that ongoing mission next on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Sturgeon. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, I'm Jared Serbium. This is on DOD. And the U.S. pulled troops and pretty much everything else out of Afghanistan several months ago. But the work of the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, or SIGAR, goes on. There is humanitarian aid flowing into Afghanistan and a lot else to account for. For more on what the ongoing mission actually entails, my colleague Tom Temin spoke with the Special Inspector General himself, John Sopko. We're smaller than we were before, but uh, there still is a lot of money going in, and we still are wrapping up a lot of audits where we can capture money if it's been wasted. So uh, uh, we're still working pretty hard, and we got a new request from a number of congressional committees and members to look at actually the collapse and what has happened in Afghanistan since the collapse. I pity you having that assignment because no matter what you say, it's going to be divisive, even though I know you're, you're not a policy type of shop. So what is left to do? What, what are you looking at at this point? What are the projects ongoing? We have a number of audits that we were doing up to the end, which was in last August. Those are uh, finishing. Uh, we have a number of financial audits where we can still identify money that's outstanding. But uh, the important thing is Congress has come back and asked us to answer some big questions. Number one, why did the Afghan government collapse so suddenly? I mean, within months. And we have a, a big team on that. We've interviewed 100 some people on that. Second question is, why did the Afghan military collapse so suddenly? And we gave them close to $80 billion. And Congress wants to know what went wrong. They also want to know what happened to all the weapons and where are they now and where are they going to? Are the Taliban selling them to other people, to terrorist groups? They want to know what happened to the money because we were pumping money in there up to the very end. 
So where did that money go? And was any of it stolen by the Taliban or by some nefarious uh, former government officials? They also want to know what happened to all of the Afghans who believed in us, the teachers, the women, the professors, the journalists, just like yourself. We had a nascent, uh, Afghanistan had a nascent journalist uh, and, and newspapers and TVs. What happened to all of those people? So those are some of the questions we're working on right now. At the same time, we're being asked by aid and by the UN, the World Bank and other NGOs as to how do we do humanitarian aid? So we're, we're still here looking at the humanitarian aid and we're, we've got about $700 million going over in humanitarian aid. The UN is saying they need $6 billion, and we, of course, pay 20% of what the UN spends. That's how much money we spend to the UN. Plus, as you notice, just last week, President Biden signed an executive order where potentially another $3.5 billion, and that's of assets that the Afghans had in our central bank here, um, that's going to be going to Afghanistan. The only caveat on it is that it can't go to the Taliban. So that's a tricky thing. How do you send money to the Afghan people without the Taliban grabbing it? So that's yeah. something we're working on. So lots of questions in that first initial list that are kind of new to the list. How do you go about finding out that information? You can't send people over there and wander around and knock on doors and check in with people. I mean, it's a place Americans really can't go at this point. Well, yes, you're absolutely correct. And, and that's it's difficult. That's why uh, we, I, uh, we issued our quarterly report, and I've spoken about this publicly. This is extremely difficult time to do oversight uh, and to try to protect the money. We think we're the best uh, government agency to do that because we had the largest uh, oversight uh, presence in Afghanistan. We've also been doing this for 10 years or more. Uh, I've been doing it for 10 years or more. We've been around for 13 years. So we can use our network of uh, sources, we can use our experts, and we can also try to follow the money. A lot of these cases that we've made in the past are basically paper cases. We're following the money from the U.S. or other donors to Afghanistan, but it's going to be extremely difficult. And that's the warning we are sending to the World Bank, to the U.N., to Congress, to the administration, to oversight. Don't forget oversight. I was a bit shocked yesterday. A very good presentation by a senior State Department official about Afghanistan went on for an hour and a half at the U.S. Institute of Peace. And not one word, not one word was said how we are going to protect the billions of dollars we're sending over to Afghanistan. We're speaking with John Sopko. He's Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. And with respect to the audit work that you have done for these past several years now, in many ways it's all in vain because all the money we spent there is sunk and we can't get it back, and now the government and the military have collapsed. But at the same time, do you think that what you learned in that oversight and the recommendations you made are still valid in the general sense for when the United States is involved in another nation in some manner? Oh, absolutely. You're, you're right on point, Tom. The, uh, the lessons we have identified and hopefully our administration has learned are useful not only in Afghanistan, but any other place around the world where we're doing a development aid, where we're trying to support and build a military, 
and there is an ongoing war. And I think if you read our uh, lessons learned reports and our reports, you'll, you'll, you'll agree with that. They're very useful. And we've been told that by aid officials, by development officials around the world. I mean, we get calls from the French, the Germans, the Brits on uh, assistance they're doing. They want to learn lessons from us. So uh, I think they're very useful. And with respect to the oversight, you have issued some kind of anticipatory principles for those that are giving humanitarian aid even before the money flows. Maybe review those for us briefly. Yeah, very briefly. And, and this is based upon our 13 years of experience. We've issued over 700 reports, and I think we have some of the brightest auditors and analysts and investigators in the world. So what we've said is these are we've sort of culled through all of our recommendations and these are sort of 10 things you have to keep in mind. First one is, and a lot of them sound real simple, but it's amazing how few of these things were actually carried out over the last 10, 15 years. First thing is establish a clear purpose for your assistance. I mean, state it directly. What are we going to accomplish? Because all programs then follow that. You know, you probably talked to a lot of, of uh, military officers or aid officials who came back from Afghanistan saying, what was I doing there? I don't even know why I was there. Well, that's a problem. So face <laughs> that. Secondly, you know, we got to have full transparency. We have to know where our money is going. So that means if we send money to UN, World Bank, Asian Development Bank, uh, any other trust fund, we have to be able to follow that money. And in the past, the World Bank and the UN and other organizations have not been giving us or other oversight agencies access. We have to really come up with a tolerable level of risk. We have to be honest with the American people. We are gonna lose some money. What we hope is we don't lose as much as we did over the last 10 years, and that's why we have this, these principles. You, you gotta monitor. You have to have monitoring and evaluation in place. And then you have to monitor the monitors because we're not gonna have Americans out there in Afghanistan. We're gonna have to use third parties. So those are some of the issues. I mean. The other key issue is let's use smart conditionality. You know, we're going to be sending or the executive order potentially says we're sending $3.5 billion to Afghanistan. Uh, the State Department isn't clear in telling us where that money is actually going to go, nor have they said how is it going to be spent. But obviously, we can condition that $3.5 billion on something we want to see the Taliban do. Sure. Whether it's dealing with women, girls, human rights issues, a free and open press, you know, smart conditionality, not like we did in the past. And we've been very critical. We came up with 600 or 800 some conditions for the Afghan government in the past. They couldn't do them. Yeah, almost uh, like a, a contractor deal or something you would put in oh, requirements. Yeah, yeah. Well, the other thing is, if you issue a condition, follow through if the Afghans, or in this case, the Taliban, don't live up to it. That was the other thing that the prior government knew. We never had the guts to actually pull the money back for not meeting the conditions. So those are some of the issues. They're all available, all of them in a long uh, discussion of each one of them, why they're important on our website, if anybody wants to see them in more detail. That's John Sopko, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, talking with Federal News Network's Tom Temin. You can find an extended version of that discussion at federalnewsnetwork.com. Earlier in the hour, we talked with the Hudson Institute's Tim Walton about the Defense Department's somewhat surprising decision to shut down the Red Hill Fuel Storage Facility in Hawaii. 
Also with Al Thompson, the CEO of HomeSafe Alliance, about what's next for that company's contract with DOD to overhaul the household goods moving system now that it's cleared all of the GAO bid protest hurdles. If you missed those conversations, this week's show will be at federalnewsnetwork.com slash on DOD. Also find us in your favorite podcast app. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Serby. So long. You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 